Um, tonight, uh, today's uh, overall topic is the topic of work. Somehow, I was given the topic to speak on of the sin of laziness. Don't know why. <laughs> um, also, Eric just took uh, about two pages of what I was going to say, so so it will be shorter. <laughs> um, anyway, we're getting some reverb here. Um, so, how how many of you have ever felt or been convicted that at times that you've been lazy? Any show of hands? I think most of us have. Um, when I looked into the topic, I was really surprised to see um, some strong words about what God says about about laziness. To be lazy um, in the Old Testament uh, is referred to as a, being a sluggard, somebody who is slothful, idle, a do-nothing, loafer, and just not willing to work. Um, there were themes that jumped out at me, and I'll just share a few of those themes very briefly. Um, Solomon seems to hit on uh, economic themes of being lazy. Uh, Proverbs 10.4 says, Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. Verse 5, same chapter, he says, He who gathers crops in the summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. And lastly, Proverbs 19.15 says, Laziness brings on deep sleep, and the shiftless go hungry. So, in, and if you, if you research this, if you just pull up laziness, you're going to see verse after verse that Solomon addresses. I, I'm only show, you know, reading three. Um, the, the, the point of it is that diligent planning and work allow us to reap the harvest. Um, it puts food on the table, money in our pockets, and it gives us the ability to give back to God, uh, to be a good Samaritan, and to help others with material needs. Laziness prevents all of those opportunities. Next, the Apostle Paul, as Eric read, uh, has very strong words uh, regarding idleness and unwillingness to work. Uh, in, in 1 Timothy 5.8, he says, anyone who does not provide for their relatives, especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Um, that took me back. I, I had not noticed that before. Um, that has very strong um, uh, ramifications for us who are believers. Um, and as Eric said, the warnings against being um, idle and unwilling to work, don't let that person eat. Um, so I think the overall point of Paul is laziness not only has material uh, consequences, but it also um, separates us from fellowship with the body. So there, there is a heavy spiritual consequence. Lastly, Jesus warns about laziness um, in the parable of the, uh, the talents. Uh, he touches on it, and I think it's important. Um, he told of a wealthy noble who gave um, entrusted talents or weights of gold to three, three, three workers, two of them uh, were profitable and um, gave back more. They invested, they worked, um, and uh, provided uh, a return on the money of this man. The third did not. He put it in the ground, he hid it. And um, 
the boss came back and condemned, um, condemned, condemned him for not being a wise steward and using what was given to him. Um, I think that there, there's, a, there's just a few uh, messages within this parable. First, that God has entrusted us uh, with much more than our material wealth. He's entrusted us with the gospel, um, our physical skills, spiritual gifts, as well as material uh, wealth and, and, and uh, goods. Um, the second uh, point that came out to me was that we're not all created with equal skills or talents. God has blessed us in different, different gifts materially and in different, with different spiritual gifts. Um, third, it's not how much God has given us, but what we do with it. Um, he wants you to be productive with it, and he is on our side. Um, he wants to welcome us into his kingdom and say, well done, good and faithful ser servant. Um, as I close, um, I realize most of us don't fit the description of the Old Testament uh, sluggard. Um, you're here, you came in cars, you're dressed. Um, but there may be areas in our life where, um, especially in our spiritual life, where we can get lazy. Um, as I reflected in, in putting this together, I realized one area for me is the area of prayer. Um, I can get really lazy with prayer. Um, I was encouraged uh, Yesterday, there was an interview in the Wall Street Journal with uh, Tim Keller. And um, as you know, he's, he was uh, diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And uh, in it, um, he, ex he explains the same struggle that he has. Um, he said that being stricken with pancreatic cancer deepened my faith and brought me closer to God. I always knew he was available, but I did not avail myself of him. And uh, he also said, I would love to be cured and spend more time here, but my relationship with God has never been better. And um, so just in closing, I encourage you to, you know, ask God to show you areas of your life where perhaps you're lazy uh, or, or where you need work. And uh, I know he'll help you. Good morning. My topic today is works which God does not accept. You may be asking, why should I even care what God accepts or rejects? Well, it's a serious matter when the Lord rejects your works, but it's a most serious and terrifying matter to stand before him and have him say, depart from me, ye that work iniquity, I never knew you. Nothing escapes his notice. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. Hebrews 4.13 You could be saying, like I did, well, I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person overall. I've never murdered anyone. I've never committed adultery. Well, let's take a look in the mirror of God's word and apply his standard to our hearts. When I was in science class, we used this stuff called litmus paper. This paper was useful to determine the pH of a solution. 
Now, it would only reveal whether the solution was a base or an acid. It didn't make the solution one or the other. Now, let's have the litmus paper represent the Word of God, and which reveals to us His Word, reveals to us His perfectly holy, good, pure character. He alone is all wise, all powerful, truly just, and altogether true. Now let's have the solution represent our hearts. And we're going to do a litmus test. Webster says that this can now refer to any single factor that establishes the true character of something or causes it to be assigned to one category or another. It often refers to something, in our case the Holy Bible, that can be used to make a judgment about whether someone or something is acceptable or not. In our case, righteous or unrighteous. In Matthew 5, we'll look at just two sins. The sin of murder and the sin of adultery. <clears throat> Jesus said, thou shalt not murder and thou shalt not commit adultery. He said, if you're angry with your brother without cause, you break the sixth commandment. Matthew Henry says about murder, anger is a natural passion. There are cases when it is lawful and laudable, but it is sinful when it is without cause. It is sinful when it is without just provocation either for no cause or no good cause. When we are angry at children for that which could not be helped, which was one piece of for only a piece of forgetfulness or a mistake that ourselves might have easily been guilty of and for which we would not have been angry at ourselves, ouch. When it is without any good aimed at, merely to show authority, to gratify a brutish passion, to excite ourselves to revenge, when we are violent, vehement, outrageous, mischievous in our anger, and we seek to hurt those we are displeased with, this is a breach of the sixth commandment. For he that is angry would kill if he could. Let's move on to adultery. You may say I've never committed the act. However, Jesus said that when you look upon a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery with her already. Now, the good moral law has weighed us in the balance and found us wanting. It has put us in the category of unrighteous. It did not make us unrighteous, and it's also futile and useless to think that the same law can make you be put into the righteous category. Because Galatians says, by the works of the law, no one will be justified, which means to be declared righteous. Why do we do this? We do this because our foolish hearts are darkened, and we, like Cain and his offering, or Saul, or Cain and his offering, or Saul did when he thought he did what was right in his own eyes and did not obey the Lord, we worship God in our own way, instead of in spirit and in truth. One of my favorite scriptures is Proverbs fourteen twelve. There is a way which seems right to man with men, but the ends of it reach to the depths of hell. Is there any hope? There's one hope. C.S. Lewis, in his uh, story, The Silver Chair, there's two characters I want to talk about. Aslan, the lion, who represents Jesus, and Jill, the young girl. Aslan's in front of a stream, and Jill is thirsty. And he says, are you not thirsty? And she says, I'm dying of thirst. He says, then come and drink. And she says, do you eat girls? He says to her, I've swallowed up men, women, kings, kingdoms. She said, well, then I can't, I can't come to drink. He says, then you'll die. She says, 
Well, I'll find another stream. He says to her, there is no other stream. There's one who kept the law perfectly. When you take God's word and you test him, he's found to be righteous. His name is called in 1 John, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And in 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. You and I need this righteousness. Do the work that Jesus said when asked in John 6, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus replied, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus Christ died on the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous, for all who believe. He was buried and he was rose again on the third day. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. He will credit to your account his righteousness and take your unrighteousness. Now to those of us who have come to the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ, how are you building? What material are you using to build upon he himself who is the foundation? 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 15. For other foundation can no man lay than what is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. The fire shall try every man's work what sort it is. If a man's work abide which he build upon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so by fire. We can only observe conduct and we cannot observe uh, motive. So don't exalt someone and don't think less of someone. There will be a fire to manifest or again reveal whether or not our works were founded and centered on Christ's doctrine to the praise of his glory and has had their foundation, the gospel. These works will endure. They have eternal value. If our works were not done centered on the gospel, did not have as their root the gospel, or were not done to glorify God, or done with a bad attitude or selfish motive, they'll be burnt up like the hay and the wood and the stubble. You will still be saved if you are a Christian, though. I think of sometimes how we focus on the benefits of the gospel rather than on preaching the gospel. For instance, before I was gloriously saved, if you talked to me about abortion, you could have brought your best argument and I would have held my position that it's a woman's choice. When the Holy Spirit entered in, however, I started thinking God's thoughts, and I realized that's a human being made in the image of God and therefore worthy of protection. Jesus Christ changes our hearts. Our pulpits need the full gospel. We like to view ourselves here in America as civilized. Any civility we had or still have is because the gospel came to these shores. There are those around you God has put in your life. Pray for them. Tell them about our righteous king. Good morning, everyone. Good, good. All right. Before I tell you this, uh, before I tell you a really quick story about this really attractive woman, let me um, read from Isaiah 43.1, while you're all nervous, uh, where God says, I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. Colossians 1.16, all things were created through him and for him. So, according to scripture, and as articulated in the catechism we read each week, God created us to know him, love him, live for him, and glorify him. Now, one of our problems is, if not the problem, as with Adam and Eve, 
is that we find it very hard to resist forbidden fruits. In fact, my wife once complained about, let's say, this very attractive woman in the commercial selling, I don't know what, car parts or something. She said, why would they need to show that to sell that? And I said to her, and men, don't try this at home. Um, Hun, you're no competition for that woman. Now, legit, Myra was easily more attractive than, than that woman, and I mean that. And I affirmed her of that. But the issue is that that model was forbidden fruit. And us, human, us humans are almost inexplicably attracted to forbidden fruit. Forbidden fruit, we think, will, we think will bring us pleasure or happiness or even glory. You will be like God, uh, the serpent said to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve immediately went to work to figure this out. Because when we fail, our natural tendency is to try to fix it. It's what we do. They try to hide behind excuses, blame, fig leaves. But unfortunately, the damage had been done. And the Bible says, sin enter the world. Perfect fellowship was ruptured. And you know, in the first two chapters of Genesis, from temptation to the tempter, to pride, to pleasure, the dynamic of all our sin and all our issues and conflict is pretty much laid out. And we can't fix it any more than our original parents could, and that has been our story ever since. My topic this morning is the finished work of Christ. And because God is awesome, only in, in only a few verses after he pronounced judgment in Eden, he promises a rescuer, a redeemer who would come and fix it. In Genesis 3.15, in what theologians call the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, God says to Satan, embodied in that old serpent, I will put enmity, enmity, not enmity, enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And by the way, spoiler alert, that's, that promise is just what happened at the cross. In Christ's death, he breaks the devil's power. Now, before we get into that wonderful, powerful cross, God ordains means of fellowship and communion with his people, establishing laws and, and priests and sacrifices and so on. But these were kind of a temporary arrangement until the permanent solution was revealed. Hebrews 10.1 Hebrews 10, calls the law a shadow of the good things to come. Now, people weren't saved by this, okay? Verse 4 expands and says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Paul emphasizes this idea later when he writes, For by the works of the law, no human will be justified. Yet for some reason, it just seems more tangible to do stuff. Hand motions, we give money, we self-depreciate. We do works to try, to try to attain redemption, as opposed to trusting and believing in what God already did. We know, saints, that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ's finished work. Still, sometimes, we try to earn brownie points, do some kind of works, don't we? Which is futile. Paul challenges the saints in Galatia, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He adds, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. 
for the righteous shall live by faith. You know, at Eden, God wasn't thinking, well, that didn't go well. What are we going to do? Jesus was the lamb foreknown before the foundation of the world, 1 Peter 1.20. This is God's plan, God's method. This is Romans 1, the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. This is the perfect and perfected work of Jesus Christ. The death of Christ plus anything else is a scam. The death of Christ plus sowing financial seed into some ministry is a scam. The death of Christ plus taking up some social cause or voting for the right politician is a scam. There is no more work to do regarding redemption. The night before Jesus died, he said to, he said to his father, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. John 17, 4. When he said, it is finished, the debt owed to our creator on account of sin was finally and forever dealt with. Christ removes our sin and our salvation is signed, delivered, and sealed by the blood of Jesus. He provides the only solution to our sin. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Francis Schaeffer makes it nice and crisp. Justification comes to sinful men and women when God declares that their guilt is paid for on the basis of the finished work of Christ. Look, B.C., before Christ, there, there was a curtain in the temple, some say about the thickness of my hand. That veil, that that curtain was torn when, when, when Christ died on the cross. And that, that, that veil represented one half was the, was the Holy of Holies, right? Where God's presence dwelt. The other, the other half was where, where the outsiders dwelt, right? But when Jesus spoke his last words on the cross, that, that temple was, that veil was torn in two. That's, that's pretty great. Like we now have access like, like, like we might say in our old hood, my old hood, like, yo, we now have access. It's glorious. You can say hallelujah. So, family, if you are in Christ, you, you don't have to wonder about your status with the Father. Do you hear that? Romans 5.10 says, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. He loves you. He is for you. And nothing could ever separate you from the love of Christ. Hear me as, as I myself, I begin to slow down and grow weaker, ache a lot more. I, I'm literally dying a little bit every day. But to die is truly gain, Philippians 1.21, because of the finished work of Christ. He is our founder and perfecter of our faith. Let's be careful not to look for ways to add to what's already been perfected. It's Labor Day. Let, let that remind us we could, we could rest from works unto salvation. Listen, we should always do the right thing. But none of those things ever, ever at all could afford us salvation. And I'll close with Spurgeon. 
If Christ's atoning work is finished, what folly and what sin to attempt to supplement it? Amen. Good morning. Saved by faith apart from works. What is salvation? It is the gracious and undeserved gift of God that delivers us from the consequence or penalty of sin. And Jesus made this possible by taking the punishment for our sins on the cross. The subject matter today brings to mind Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which reads, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now this informs us that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus and not by our own efforts or works. Grace alone, faith alone. Grace alone means that God loves, forgives, and saves us not because of who we are or what we do, but because of the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. The Protestant reformers led by Martin Luther recognized that saving faith has three essential aspects, and they would be the Latin words, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Notitia refers to the content of our faith, what we actually believe. For example, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died on the cross to atone for our sins. Ascensus is the conviction that the content of our faith is true. And fiducia involves trust. Knowing and believing the content was not enough, for even the demons do that, as James 2.19 reminds us. Faith produces the intended effect only if one personally trusts in Christ alone for salvation. Romans 10.3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Paul is voicing concern that rather than living by faith, the Jewish people created customs and traditions in addition to the law, seeking to make themselves acceptable in God's sight. Some people promote their own brand of legalism with extra rules to follow. They believe they can earn God's favor by what they do. And as a result, they are not trusting completely in Christ's work on the cross. In struggling with God's power to change them, they are not resting in God's power to save them. And ignorance plays a role in this approach. If those who talk about self-righteousness were to carefully examine themselves, they would see that even in their best works, there were likely impure motives beforehand and self-congratulation afterward. In this pursuit, ignorance is accompanied by pride. And over the years, there have been movements and ideologies that have sprouted up from this way of thinking. One of the more prominent ones was Pelagianism, named after the British monk Pelagius. He denied several fundamental Christian doctrines, such as original sin, total depravity, the fall of man, salvation by grace, and the sovereignty of God. He was convinced that people had within themselves the ability to avoid corrupt behavior 
and choose righteous living without the help of God's grace. And according to Pelagius, people are not naturally sinful, but they can live holy lives in harmony with God's will and earn salvation through good works. Pelagianism reduces salvation and sanctification to works of human will rather than gifts of God's grace. Augustine, the early theologian, vehemently opposed this, and he likened it to heresy. Subsequent church councils agreed, and Pelagius lived out the remainder of his life in obscurity. Now, Scripture is very clear. No amount of sincere human effort, whether it be discipline, self-improvement, or law-keeping, can ever substitute for the righteousness God offers us by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.9, it's read, we read, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Charles Spurgeon, in his sermon entitled Salvation by Works, a Criminal Doctrine, says, and I quote, It is utterly impossible for us to hope that we ever can be just before God on the footing of our own doing. He who trusts in himself, his feelings, his works, his prayers, or in anything except the grace of God, gives up trusting in the grace of God altogether. For be it known to you that God's grace will never share the work with man's merit. As oil will not combine with water, neither will human merit and heavenly mercy mixed together, end quote. So what is the relationship between faith and works? Well, the relationship is that works are the result of faith. They are often contrasted, but they are not the same. And the combination of faith and works does not bring about salvation. As mentioned earlier, salvation is by faith alone. Galatians 2.16, Paul writes, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul was determined not to have the concept of salvation by works gain a foothold in the church. He fought for the concept of salvation by faith and against any thought of righteousness by obedience to ceremonial law. Now, at the same time, Paul is not saying that the law is bad. In Romans 7.12, he writes, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. What he is saying is that the law can never make us acceptable to God. However, the law can still be important in the life of a Christian. It guards us from sin by giving us standards for behavior, and it drives us to trust in the sufficiency of Christ. Once again, bear in mind that our works are not added to the sacrifice of Jesus. Isaiah 64, 6 reminds us that our works are seen as filthy rags before God. Now, all of the preceding is not to suggest that we are to be exempt from doing good works. In fact, we are obligated to, as emphasized by Ephesians 2.10, where Paul writes, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which were prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The bottom line is, we don't do good works to be saved. We do good works 
because we are saved. Consider Galatians 2.21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The grace of God should never be viewed as a secondary consideration. There are those who think that they need to merit as much as they can by their own efforts, and then God's grace will make up the rest. That type of thinking dishonors the work of Christ. To think that man is redeemed as much by our own doings as by the ransom price of Jesus' blood? Perish the thought. Spurgeon offered this in a continuation of his sermon cited earlier, quote, It is affirmed that if we preach salvation by good works, we shall encourage virtue, and so it may seem in theory. But history proves that where such doctrine has been preached, virtue has been singularly uncommon. However, where justification by faith has been preached, conversions have followed, and purity of life has been produced even in the worst of men. Those who lead godly and gracious lives are ready to confess that the cause of their zeal for holiness lies in their faith in Christ Jesus. And lastly, let's look at two final verses and see how they can be reconciled. James 2.24 reads, You see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. Romans 3.28 reads, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, are these verses contradicting each other? Not at all. Earlier in James 2.22, he uses the Greek word eteliothe to explain that good works are the completion of saving faith. He is not claiming works are required for salvation. Rather, he is attacking against the attitude that one could be saved by a faith devoid of works. He is saying that faith expresses itself in action as the evidence of a faith that already exists. And James affirms Paul's teaching by contrasting true faith with false or dead faith. And the order of the two is very important. Faith always precedes works. Dr. John Kessler, Professor Emeritus of Moody Bible Institute, wrote this in the February 2019 issue of Today in the Word, quote, The believer's good works belong to the realm of sanctification. Sanctification follows justification. We contribute nothing to our justification, but we cooperate with the process of sanctification. In Romans 3.28, Paul is summarizing what he wrote earlier in the same chapter. It serves as a useful and concise proof that our salvation is never dependent on deeds, rituals, sacraments, or any other behavior. In closing, let's be reminded why God saves by faith. Faith eliminates the pride of human effort. Faith exalts what God has done not what we do. And faith is based on our relationship with God, not our performance for God. Martin Luther very astutely put it this way, quote, Justification is by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. The faith that justifies is a fetus viva, or 
a living faith, a faith that is alive, and you know it's alive when it manifests itself in the fruit of obedience. Good morning. The final topic is um, being saved unto good works. So Ephesians 2.10, as Jim had already um, shared with us, I'll read it again. It says, For we are His workmanship, that is God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works or unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So when I read this, or when I read this, or consider this, there are two questions that come to mind. The first one is, what is a good work? And secondly, how do we walk in them? Because God, through um, the Holy Spirit, communicates to us, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, that we should walk in them. So what is a good work? This will be the fastest question to answer. Um, A good work, very simply and obviously, is one that pleases God. One where God's glory is the motive for your actions. A good work is one that pleases God, where God's glory is the motive for your action. Scott mentioned about our motives. The motive, what drives you to carry out this action, is the glory of God. Or it could be pride. In the case of good works which God accepts, following salvation from us, these are good works which stem from faith in the finished work of Christ, and their motive behind them is the glory of God. And Jesus Christ, as Joel also mentioned to us, makes this clear in John 17, 4, when he's praying to the Father, he says, Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, Let your light shine before others, so when they see your good works, they glorify your Father, God, who is in heaven. The motive for your actions must be the glory of God for them to qualify as a good work. So the second question is, how do we walk in them? I'll give you an illustration. It might not immediately ring with you, but allow me to elaborate and then explain it. When you're firing a handgun, there's this concept known as front sight focus. Front sight focus. Now, on a handgun, you have two sights. You have a front sight and you have a rear sight. The front sight is one single post. It end, it's found at the very end of the barrel of the firearm. The rear sight is two posts. Think of a field goal post. And in order to accurately aim and hit your target, you must align the front with the rear, and the front must be of your singular focus. Now, there is, of course, a target that you need to have in mind. In many cases, when you're firing um, a handgun, the target is going to be in sight, but blurry and somewhat out of focus because your target, your aim in this case, will say it's pleasing God, glorifying God. Your target is known, it's visible, but your focus is the front of this firearm. This is where you need to focus. The reason for that is the front focus will communicate to you where your firearm is relative to the target. If the front sight is down and your target is up, the front sight's communicating to you, you are off the mark. Now, 
It's very critical. There are two sights for a reason. The front sight is there to communicate to your eyes where the target is and where your rear sight comes into play is aligning the entire firearm to hit your target. Now allow me to explain this or to expand it. And this is actually one key point before I go and expand it. If at any point your rear sight is out of alignment with your front sight, regardless of where your focus is, so we said the focus is the front sight, regardless of where your focus is, you're going to miss your target every time. Every time you'll miss your target. The rear sight and the front sight must be in aligned. Your focus must be on the front sight and the target in line before you. So by God, you and I are armed with the tools to please him. Paul says we are his, God's workmanship. He has armed you and I, equipped us in Christ. He says we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Christ's life communicates to you and I that God's glory is the motive, the reason why we're aiming and eventually taking a shot. God's glory is our motive. Jesus Christ is that front sight that you focus on. Paul says in the book of Colossians, did I say it right? Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Set or seek and set your mind on the things that are above, where Christ is. Christ is the front focus, and the rear alignment is your life and my life. Jesus Christ says in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. You will miss the mark if you are separate and disjointed from Christ. And if your eyes are not fixed on him and the work that he has finished, he has finished that work. If your eyes are not focused on him, you will miss honoring, praising, and glorifying God by your works. So Christ is our front sight. We set our mind and our hearts on him. And our life is the rear sight, which Christ says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You line them up, the front sight centered with the rear, and you take your shot, your good work, and you will hit the mark of pleasing and glorifying and honoring God in heaven. I'm going to read to you from the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 12 to 17 to close. I'm going to read from the Amplified Version because it affords me the opportunity for someone else to expound on this without consuming any more of the time which I am running out of. But notice in the first few verses that I read, what is being said is actually a description of the character of Christ, the very person that you and I must be focused on, singularly focused on. And then the verses that precede it communicate to us how we will act in alignment and in um, concert with what we are, have seen in Christ and continue to see in Christ. So allow me to read, please, Colossians 3, 12 through 17. So, as God's chosen people who are holy, set apart and sanctified for His purpose and well-beloved by God Himself, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, which has the power to endure whatever injustice or unpleasantness comes with good temper, bearing graciously with one another and willingly forgive each other if one has a cause for complaint against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so should you forgive. Picture Christ on the road to Calvary. Has he not displayed these characteristics so perfectly? A heart of compassion, of kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. He endures 
the injustice that we earned willingly. Focus on Christ. See his perfect and incredible character and nature. Verse 14, beyond all these things, put on and wrap yourselves in unselfish love, which is the perfect bond of unity for everything is bound together in agreement when each one seeks the best for others. What did Christ do? He came down to this earth not to exalt himself, but to raise you and I up to be children of God. Let, verse 15, let the peace of Christ, the inner calm of one who walks daily with him, be the controlling factor in your hearts, deciding and settling questions that arise. To this peace, indeed, you were called as members in one body of believers, and be thankful to God always. Verse 16, let the word of Christ have its home within you, dwelling in your heart and mind. Train one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, and this is the most critical verse, whatever you do, no matter what it is, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus and in dependence on him, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Pleasing God is our motive. Christ is our focus. Your life must be aligned with him and his word. And when those happen, you will aim and successfully hit the target of pleasing God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for the work that you have brought to completion, that there is no more work to do regarding salvation. Praise be your name. No more work to do regarding salvation. But Lord, you have graciously called us into this labor of glorifying you and honoring you. Our prayer and our plea, Lord Jesus Christ, is that you keep us near to you. May we not wander from you. May we abide in you and focus on you. And may our lives be in alignment with you that you, God, above all, would be glorified. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.